Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to On the Continent, your definitive guide to the week in European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Miguel Delaney. On this edition, has the Saudi Arabian dream gone sour for its poster boy Karim Benzema and all. Also, what on earth is the Super Coppa Italiana and why has the Lazio boss described it as anything but sport? And the changing role of Jude Bellingham at Real Madrid. What will the coach ask him to do if and when Kylian Mbappe arrives and how would he do it? As we're starting with Karim Benzema, Andy, what on earth is going on? Cristiano Ronaldo comes out and says to the world that the Saudi Arabia League is better than Ligue 1 in France. But it does seem, following uh, Jordan Henderson's departure, that the, the big name, the star name to the Saudi Arabian League also wants out now. Yeah, and this, this is huge, I, I think. Now, Benzema has denied this earlier in the week, he's denied that he's asked to leave. I think the wording is quite interesting. He's not denied that he's given his agent, for example, um, a mandate to argue that he he should be allowed off or out, maybe temporarily. Um, And and Al-Itihad, his club, have been briefing that he's asked to temporarily leave as well. So the fact that he's coming out and saying that this, this is all nonsense made up by the press, well, it's reported by the press. It's not made up by the press. So that, that's, that's, that's very important to, to stress. But I think it's a, it's a huge moment because, of course, we've seen the first little murmurs of discontent. And we've seen it with players that have gone to the Middle East before, for vast sums, before this current Saudi Pro League expansion. You get people who are tempted by the cash, understandably, who sign, go over there, and it's the ultimate, it's, it's like a rock and roll cliche. Like four months in, they go, oh yeah, the football's not that good, is it? Because they're competitive beasts and they're bred to be competitive beasts. And that seems to be the issue with, with Benzema, certainly. I mean, it's one thing, Jordan Henderson going, this is not for me. It's another thing, as I was saying earlier in the week, Amrit Laporte going, oh, well, I don't like the traffic in Riyadh. And the league setup's not that professional. You knew it was developing league when you come. So all these complaints are totally illegitimate, by the way. And then you have Karen Benzema coming back 17 days late from holiday. Um, Marcelo Gallardo, not the coach, not wanting to reintegrate him back into the squad. And him seemingly looking at the possibility 
of going elsewhere, either temporarily or permanently. And when we talk about that competitive animal, like Benzema is at the top of that, of course. You look at how he's converted himself at Real Madrid since from an already elite player to something else that they needed after Cristiano Ronaldo went. And we'll talk a little bit more, I think, about the relationship between him and Cristiano Ronaldo afterwards. But the fact that even though like a, a return to Leon isn't going to come off, it's just not really possible. The fact that it's floated as a possibility, that it seems more possible than when he's at Real Madrid, shows what an extraordinary situation this is. Miguel, um, where did the living the dream go wrong for <laughs> the Saudi Arabian League, or at least for some of these star players? What, what's not working? Well, I suppose if you were to put this in the most benign terms, um, it is a consequence of a league and I suppose sporting structure moving too fast or faster than where it is, which I mean, it's a usually underdeveloped league. I mean, so from what I've already been told in the past two weeks, particularly with the cases of Henderson, say, even the basic facilities are, um, are, are, are just, I mean, they were described to me as, like a lower league club um, hosting a big Premier League club for a cup tie. That's the kind of level where something can, you know, ad hoc stuff thrown up, players warming down in media rooms. Uh, I did this, I'm speaking generally here, not in specific cases, but like this is some of the stuff that's been relayed. Uh, and I suppose allied to that, um, I think from what's obviously come across is uh, players, or some players don't necessarily feel they can live as close to their Western lives as they thought, we know a few have been over in Bahrain, where it's a bit more liberal. Um, and I, I mean, I suppose that's when you get right down to it. That that's where these sort of issues issues arise. It's the day to day. It's how it's how people feel about things. Um, so I mean, if, what it does as well is it probably points to maybe the way this was talked about within the game last summer, where it was almost like you know it was often described as a bit of a like the equivalent of a gold rush. You know, people people just saw money come from somewhere. So many wanted to get in. Like I was even told, say, in the England squad, that players were regularly asking Henderson what it was like um, in anticipation of maybe considering their own futures. And this, I suppose, just checks all that and, and illustrates that the Saudi Pro League, its, um, its wider structure doesn't match its, uh, its potential financial outlay. If this becomes a trend, well, what is the knock-on effect? Well, I in think, Europe. I think what happens to Benzema is really important from here because not only is he arguably the best player in it, he's a recent Ballon d'Or winner. He's a Muslim superstar, which is massively important, just like to a lesser extent, say, Riyad Mahrez coming over is, is, is really important. I was thinking Mo Salah because there's talk of him maybe. Yeah, yeah that, that, that would be a real prize as, as, as well if, if, if that were to, to, to happen. So it's not just if he goes, it's the circumstances under which he goes. Like the Henderson thing doesn't feel too damaging to me because, you know, it's, it's, it's felt like the way they've dealt with it on both sides, it didn't work. Let's call it quits. And of course, it's far more damaging to Jordan Henderson and his public image and branding than it is to arguably him in a football sense and, and, and certainly Al Etifak, really. But what Miguel, going back to what Miguel was saying there about you know, the level of professionalism. I think maybe some of these players didn't understand that to bring up those standards is part of the reason they were there, or they didn't really understand what that meant. 
because the way that Alessifak, for example, um, reacted to Jordan Henderson arriving, looking at the facilities and thinking, what's going on here? They were like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, all right, we will put in a state-of-the-art gym. Let's go and put in a state-of-the-art gym because they can afford to do it. I think it's just understanding what these top players need. And it's unreasonable. Whatever you think about the morality of it, it's unreasonable for these players to arrive and expect it to be like Real Madrid, Liverpool, whatever, already. Part of the reason they are there is to really demand those things and for the people who organise the Saudi Pro League and the people who are at the clubs to understand what those elite players need. And they're still in the very beginning of that. But I think it's quite interesting when you look at the closeness, the previous closeness, not, not friendship, but professional respect, high level of professional respect between Karen Benzema and Cristiano Ronaldo, the different ways they're going now. Now, of course, a lot was made of when Al Etihad and Al Nasser played each other in the Saudi Pro League, how they didn't greet each other particularly warmly. Now, Ronaldo has always really appreciated Benzema because he supplied a lot of his goals. He, you know, he always says he was his favourite strike partner ever, all that sort of stuff. Now, there are two things here. Firstly, Benzema's status has changed and changed in a way that could threaten Ronaldo's status in Saudi. What, in terms of him being the Muslim superstar? Or yeah, I think, oh. I, I think so. Almost high, more high profile, more, more popular. But I think, I think the, the other thing is that they are like, the, the way they are looking at it at the moment. So Benzema, it seems, is like dissatisfied with the sporting side of it. Whereas Cristiano Ronaldo, Miguel, he's talking up the sporting side of it because it's almost like he just the protests too much. You know, he's justifying his own sporting choices and I guess bigging up where he is at the moment, like flattering himself really by talking up the, the standard of the league. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, that's a case of mutual interests aligning there. Yeah, uh, especially especially when it comes to something, I suppose, as um, that 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 serves such rudimentary motivation for Ronaldo as his goal record. Because um, I mean, that, that that post he had about outscoring Haaland or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> I mean, look at the context, mate. Uh, but he, I mean, even beyond that, that side of it. But he's also been such a willing ambassador. Like the way he was seen, say at that whatever that fight was recently. Um, beside Conor McGregor, you know, laughing very ostentatiously and uproariously, um, and he, he, so he, I mean, Ronaldo, I suppose, he's been he, he's really gone for it in that sense. Um, I, I can hear that Miguel's holding back. Go on, say what you really want to say. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not, maybe not the wisest. <laughs> but I, I guess I guess sports sports washing is Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> it's, it's, it, <laughs> but with with Ronaldo, is is it a case that he doesn't have the options because he just you know he ended up in Saudi because there weren't sporting but, 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 options but left that, for him in Europe? Isn't this one of the fundamental problems with modern football? And actually, and I would include say. Not to the same degree, uh, but Messi's decision to go to Paris Saint-Germain uh, two and a half years ago, uh, where the talk was all the time was, well, he doesn't have many options. Well, they only don't have those many options because the ludicrous demands they make on wages. And yeah. with, of course, the wage, yeah. the, wage, the wage race currently, I would say, having a hugely destructive effect on football as a whole. Now, of course, these are two you know, literal exceptions, exceptional players in that way, in how, you know, they can demand the going rate. But 
it, it, or sorry, they can go, they can demand what people are willing to pay for them. But I mean, there are other concerns rather than money. And I suppose to Messi's credit, although it's, I mean, he'll have done well at the MLS deal. Um, <laughs> uh, but but I suppose to, 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 to Messi's credit, given that Saudi Saudi probably probably would have given him a blank check in that sense. Um, he 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 didn't go there. But yeah, like I I I think like these people they don't need the money. And 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 they should be under no illusions over what they're there for, especially someone like Ronaldo. I mean, given their profile, this does come down to as I suppose as blunt or as fundamental um, a, a definition of sports washing as you can get, using famous pe- person to legitimise yourself. And so it's not just a case of players going out to play playing football or just or and the, the the issue isn't even say how they're getting paid or sorry more or sorry where the money's coming from and the kind of whether that money. Has questions. It's it's how it's specifically how they're being used, and and they should be fully conscious of that. Yeah, Miguel makes a really fundamental point here. You know, if these players didn't make the huge demands that they made um, that they make financially for clubs here in Europe, they would probably be playing in the European leagues at one point. Although they're another. being offered more there than they ever thought was possible. No, I, I get I, that. I guess the other part of that. Yeah. Well, no, I, I get that. Yeah. But if now they're being, if now they're dissatisfied, or at least some of those big names are dissatisfied with playing in the Saudi leagues, I'm presuming they're going to come back to Europe, those who still have some time on their careers. How does that then impact on the European leagues? Where, where do they go to? Again, with Jordan Henderson, it was somewhat random that he ended up at Ajax, wasn't mm. it? But but this is this is the bigger issue, and this is why I know it's um, it's actually extremely relevant to the recent debates about how profit and sustainability rules work in football. The more money that comes in from outside football, uh, which is supposed essentially be it private equity, be it states, the more it inflates the market and actually narrows the potential options for play. Exactly what we're talking about, and makes football a less uh, there's less vitality to the game, less variety to the game. Mm. So if you think about it, say. If the if the Saudi Pro League and and FIFA could very could very well bring in salary caps if they wanted, but if the Saudi Pro League say wasn't able to offer this level of money, or any of the kind of major European clubs offer such levels of money, well, what would happen? We'd probably see a situation where, like, like in the nineteen nineties, Maradona is at Sevilla for a while, me, me, Messi maybe goes to Napoli or something, and it just just spreads talent across Europe in the way that we kind of need to see... Well, really, we need to see talent spread across the global game. That should be stressed. But I don't... I mean, for all that people talk about how it's... um, You know, it, it's it's better for the sport outside Europe to have the Saudi Pro League. I don't think it is because it just... It raises the financial threshold and concentrates talent there rather than spreading it. I think that's it. And I think... For me, it's it's hugely damaging to Saudi Pro League if if, if Karen Benzema goes, because it, it's it's clear just on a quick eye test that his feeling about it is a sporting feeling. Cristiano Ronaldo's feeling about it is something else. Whatever he might tell himself, and I think it's funny because obviously both of those come from a similar situation at Real Madrid where they've been key players for Real Madrid for over a decade, winning a ton of Champions Leagues, playing at an extremely high level. And the uniqueness of Real Madrid, of course, is that you don't get an uncritical audience. There, there have been moments in 
Karen Benzema's decade plus at Real Madrid, in Cristiano Ronaldo's nine years at Real Madrid, where you can be doing superhuman feats for the team and you'll still get some shit off the crowd because that's how it is at Real Madrid. You know, really, there is no player, there is simply no player who is bigger than the institution. But I think it's interesting to see that Ronaldo has had a very uncritical reception in Saudi because he has been, as Miguel says, such a, a fervent cheerleader for the pro- project. Whereas, as we said, Benzema went there as a more going concern in terms of a current footballer, I think it's fair to say, and also as that Muslim superstar. And he gets there and think, hang on, aren't I meant to get uncritical adoration here? Mm-hmm. It, this is meant to be different from Real Madrid. But in fact, they're going, oh, well, you scored some goals, but why aren't we further up the league? You know, you know, so so it's, it's it's funny. I think both in terms of standard and in terms of how he's received, it's not been what he's expected. Fifteen goals in twenty four games is that a good return? It's it's not bad, is it? I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't think it's it's disgraceful by by any means, but no, it's, no. it's not done for them on a sporting level. What he thought they wouldn't, and if this is a project, well, this is a project, obviously to raise the profile and raise the, 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 the cash out of the Saudi league. And if the big stars start going, it fails. It, you know, it's over pretty quickly. I think the, the, the fact you must remember that Saudi Arabia has quite a strong football culture already. That's something that's quite glossed over in the, in, in, in the talks about the, 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 the Saudi pro league. So even if on the admin side, they want to inflate it at a level that, to an enormous level and on a level that is not really ready for on an infrastructure scale just yet, there's there's still going to be sporting demand. So I think there's been misunderstanding from a lot of those players who've gone there on a lot of different levels and that will obviously make some of them come back to Europe. I can't help wondering where Benzema will be able to come back to Europe. You've already ruled out Leon, Andy. Um, where else is there for him but, to but, go? But just so, on that, I mean, I like I I've heard he's been pitched around a lot of the big clubs, and again he come back to this this issue. His they they don't want to take his wages at that age. So if if he wants to if he wants to go to a higher club, he's got to lower his wages. Um, it comes down to those simple maths, I suppose. That's it, because he could he could go back to Leon if he wanted to, just like Cristiano Ronaldo, mm. as he emphatically ruled out this week. <laughs> could go back to sporting. And, you know, in, if, if we're talking about, you know, your legacy, for, from both those players' perspectives, that, that, would, that would be the ultimate coda to their career, wouldn't it, in many ways? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Well, we're never far away from discussing Saudi Arabia, even when we want to talk about the Supercoppa Italiana. It's taken place in Saudi Arabia, but it is the Italian charity shield, isn't it? The equivalent of it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because clearly Italy has a long history of farming out their their Supercoppa, and it goes back to... Uh, Juventus and their relationship with Colonel Gaddafi. So that's why you have the Supercoffer in Tripoli when you're going back 20 years. It's been in all sorts of different places. They're not the only nation who's done it, of course, because, you know, France have had their Trophée des Champions and they were going to have it in Thailand this year before the funding fell through. Um, they've they've had it um, in in China, in Canada, Austria, all different places. To a lot of public indifference, it has to be said as as, as well. So it does feel like a, a sort of still a trophy potential, yeah. But I, I, I'm thinking about why they're moving it. So there's been a lot of, I guess, spreading the world world globally box ticking. Though whether it's actually succeeded in the sort of expansion they want is is a different question. I think the Supercoppa Italiana. And the reaction to the reformatting of it, because it's gone from being league winner versus cup winner to now a a, a four team semi final and final business, which is following the Spanish model, because of course they sold a ten year license to Saudi Arabia to have a four team Super Copper there, and it's the what the third year they've had it there now. This year just gone, and the reaction to it in Italy especially because they haven't had a winter break because, well, it, it, it partly comes back to the Premier League and the Premier League's domination because they don't want the Premier League to have a clear run at football on television throughout Christmas. So they kind of did away with the winter break. You know, they had games on the 23rd and the 30th th- th- this season. And now you look at Maurizio Sarri, as you talked about in the in- intro, saying well, this has got nothing to do with football because... They're playing a competition which has been morphed for commercial purposes, which has been displaced for commercial purposes. And if you're Inter, especially, being moved to the Middle East and having a huge other competition just stuck in the middle of your season, it's potentially quite damaging. Uh, Mikel, I wonder, the idea of having not just the league winners, the... Um, Serie A winners, but the runners-up in Serie A, as well as not just the Cop winners, the uh, Coppa Italia winners, but also the runners-up there, playing together, makes sense at all in any case, from what we understand as a charity shield. I mean, no, it's just basically an attempt to almost artificially bump up a competition to create a bit of buzz around it. Uh, Again, to serve, as Andy has pointed there, Italy's own attempt, or Italian football's own attempt, I suppose, to recover some ground against the Premier League, but also Saudi Arabia's attempt to A, both sports wash, and B, in the, in the most reductive terms, and B, um, to further its influence in football. And I think it's why this, even this case doesn't need to be seen in, it shouldn't be seen in isolated terms, because it's also a case of almost moving the Overton window into to make, or to normalise the influence of this, and at the very least, it opens a gateway to something that is much more uh, of an issue for football, 
which is both states and private equity groups seeking not just to own clubs, but to eventually exert influence through owning stakes in leagues. Um, and, what, and while it, 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 that's not to say that a Super Cup in Saudi Arabia leads directly to that, it's more the way it shifts things along and shifts perceptions along. And that's not where sports should be. And there's already, I mean, the Brazilian, the, the new uh, Brazilian league that's um, being planned to revolutionise Brazilian football. Well, like, I mean, <laughs> Mubadala, um, the the UAE uh, wealth fund that is run by Khaldun Al-Mubarak, uh, the Manchester City uh, chairman, they've been looking at investment in that league. Uh, and, and this is going to be the next step in this entire process. And again, it's it's not really what... Uh, what sport is for? Uh, Nicky Bandini, our, our own Italian football expert, wrote a really interesting piece in The Guardian about this, uh, about what the fans thought. And she said for most, most Italian football fans, they'll think, I'm not going all the way to Saudi Arabia. But crucially, she said with the Inter fans, they see it as, well, we took an oath at birth to follow mm. uh, Inter wherever it goes. So therefore, we're going to do it even though we don't like to do it. And I wonder whether that is sufficient to sustain it, that there will be a limited, but nevertheless, strong demographic of fans who are willing to fly all the way to Saudi Arabia or anywhere else in the world to to, to see this Supercopa. Well, that's that's how the Spanish Supercopa has is, is evolved, because the crowds were really poor first time around. Um, and you had no traveling fans to speak of at, at all. And whereas you want to spread it to a local market or they want to spread it to a, a, a local market, I think you do need that dash of homespun authenticity as well. I, I think that's really important in, in, in terms of, that of, of making the culture. it important. It doesn't it make does. sense unless you it have the home supporters who you know what it's about. You're exactly right. And I don't, I don't know about you, when I was watching the semi the first semi-final between Napoli and Fiorentina. Quite acceptable football match, but it just felt like really quite unimportant because it was so empty. Now, they, they had the crowd as like 9,500, but it's nowhere near that. It must have been like tickets sold or given away or whatever because there were never that many inside the stadium. And it made it hard to, I guess, treat it as something that was important or worthwhile or part of a, a major competition or anything like that. I just wonder, especially with the reaction in Italy, and we're not just talking about Saudi, we're talking about the fans, we're talking about the players. Is this something that Saudi Arabia has not really factored into its football expansion plan, Miguel? The fact that there's increasing pushback at how the calendar is, is getting clogged because we're starting to hear not just Saudi, not just... Um, influential journalists, but like Mbappe and Griezmann, for example, start to talk about the demands on players. And, you know, it's just, it's tone deaf when you look at the demands that have been on those players in the last three or four years. So I think it's really interesting this uh, in terms of, I suppose, it's one of those things where almost a mundane change to the game in terms of how it's actually played or when it's played can have bigger effects because when we talk about it, like I suppose the entire Saudi Pro League project, the general effects of, uh, you know, Gulf politics encroaching into sport, it's always put in terms of kind of like these bigger issues like resistance over exactly that, sports washing or human rights 
Whereas the most pointed or effective opposition might actually be just how the game works in that just <laughs> the calendar can't keep expanding. And it's something someone in football put to me a good while ago, actually. And I think that's been reflected by many people since. And we can see it with basically every development over the past three years in particular, where it's it's almost a, a, a simple reality now. Who controls the calendar basically controls the game and principally uh, the money in the game and, wh- and where it's going. And that's why this is such a crucial issue that has also had the problem of almost falling into this widening schism between UEFA and FIFA, especially as FIFA, with the considerable backing of Saudi in, in this regard, want more influence in the club game. And this is the genesis of the club, the expanded Club World Cup from 2025, which is their attempt, I suppose, to have their own Champions League that, of course, the Saudi Pro League is very interested in because it's a chance to almost to, to bump up the global reputation of their own clubs. Um, but as we say, that can that just can't go indefinitely. I mean, there are, there are literal time limits in terms of days in the year. Yeah, there are only 365 days in the year. What a shame. There are. But it is a sobering thought what Miguel says there. He or she who controls the calendar controls the game, the finances of the game, and everything else. So it feels almost, um, I suppose, un- unimportant what goes on on the field. But it is important. Napoli were up against Inter in the final of this uh, Supercoppa Italiana. We should really talk about that. Okay, we know the ending. Uh, it ended up as an Inter victory. Right at the end. Yeah, yeah, right at the end. But Napoli did probably better in this match than they've done for much of the season in yeah. Serie A. And it's, it's like like we were saying, they're, they're, they're quite impressive in the in, in the semi against um, Fiorentina as well, or beating them 3-0. And even though they went out there um, with their form on the floor, with Ozyman not coming with them because he's at mm. the African Cup of Nations, of course, I felt like the, the, uh, the circumstance obviously dictates, you know, when you would ideally like a half-time break or when you would ideally like a certain competition to interrupt another or, or, or whatever. But I think from a Napoli perspective, this could have worked quite well. That sort of get away from Serie A, get away from the pressure of the supporters and the atmosphere of the city, which is uniquely demanding as as, as well. Um, you know, bear in mind that, you know, we're talking about Mourinho being parachuted in there to like rescue the season like a week ago. And now everyone can breathe a little bit more easily. Now, that won't last, of course, if they get back and have a, a, a terrible result at Lazio this weekend. But I think to be able to get away for a competition that, to be honest, a lot of people in Italy don't really care about, for um, Walter Mazzari to be able to try out a few different things tactically, I think it was helpful to have that. On the other hand, for Inter, for them, they've had two extra matches that they didn't really want. They've had a long trip that they didn't uh, really uh, want. Inzaghi and the the players didn't really want. And while they're away, Juventus go top of the of, of Serie A and really <laughs> they didn't like that. And, and they they get themselves to a point where um, even Max Allegri is sitting there at last and going, you know what, we are in the title fight. Bring it on. You know, so there is a sense of a little change of momentum. Now, of course, they do have those games in hand, but 
I guess for a, a, a comparison from an English perspective, it's a bit like when Manchester City go off to the Club World Cup and you've that feeling of how far behind are we going to be when when we come back and of course that you have to make up those games as well. Interesting that it's it's like a winter break for Napoli. It was, you know, exactly what they A winter break in a right season time. without a winter break. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, you yeah. know. So obviously we don't know where Kylian Mbappe will end up at the end of the season yet. But is it fair to say that Jude Bellingham's role at Real Madrid has started to change already with a view of what might happen uh, next season. Yeah, I mean, it's even in a broader sense, I was thinking about this. Uh, I, but actually, first of all, I know we've gone back and forth in this the pod. I think PSG right now, January 25th, 2024, the thinking is Mbappe is more likely to leave. It's not quite as certain as it was in the summer that he'll go to Real Madrid, although I suppose I think I think there's potential for something to change there. Uh, but at the moment, it's the likeliest destination. Uh, that will, of course, reshape the gravity of the Real Madrid team. Um, but it's interesting as well in the sense that I like I, I, I was thinking about this generally with Bellingham and and the evolution of of, of players in that way. And if you think about, I suppose, the, the players that would really be in the top bracket of the world. It's it's striking how how often they they almost all end up gravitating no matter where they play to essentially a, a kind of a modern number ten position because I suppose that's or at least the primary playmaking position because that is a reflection of their talent. So Messi starts out as a winger, obviously becomes the main playmaker that kind of that number ten. Mbappe starts out as a fa- as a fast wide forward. You can yeah, again see him moving more into the center of a team. Yeah. Um, Mohamed Salah the same. It's amazing how often it happens because it's just naturally the way the ball will just gravitate towards those players. So it's it's a very organic evolution. <laughs> I think it's testament to Bellingham's um, abilities that a we're already talking about him in this sort of status because I think there's absolutely no doubt he will be one of the two, three best players in the world, if not the best. Uh, and B, that he's already at the sort of development in his talent where we we, we can talk about him in this sort of role. And so if Madrid do sign Mbappe, it is very interesting how they're going to already marry that way. Now, the thinking, I suppose, has been that if Mbappe comes, he'll end up playing wide forward, which could have repercussions for, for uh, Vinicius Jr. But I'm not sure it's quite that simple. Um, and there's, it's a good thing Ancelotti is so diplomatic. Because um, <laughs> it, it's there's a bit to work out now, but but it's it's all the more interesting as well because I think we, I've said this on the on the pod before, but about three or four years ago, as Madrid were analysing the kind of state of the European market and had the masterstroke of appointing Juni Calafat, uh, who's been responsible for so much recruitment and this change of policy, they essentially decided that a modern four three three was going to be their formation in the next ten years. And started to reshape the squad around that and away from expensive stars in the late 20s, early 30s. And I suppose if Mbappe comes and so much has been built towards this, it maybe just changes the, the dynamic of that slightly. I guess there are a, a two notable steps on in the last month or two. One is from the Mbappe perspective, Luis Enrique starts to play him at centre forward. And it's clear that he has a long term future there. So the whole panic about 
Oh, but him and Vinicius playing in the same position, I don't think that's so much of an issue anymore. The second part, if we actually look at Real Madrid themselves, is the fact that if we go back six weeks, eight weeks, when they've got an absolute ton of injuries, and all of a sudden, they don't just start leaning on Bellingham more. They start leaning on Rodrigo more. And whereas Rodrigo is clearly immensely talented, he's almost thought of as this deluxe pinch hitter. I don't think that's so much the case anymore. And we've seen, I guess, not just an adaptation of Vinicius as he's come back in the team. And you, you've had these last couple of weeks, this almost front two of Vinicius and Rodrigo with Bellingham a little bit behind them which I think is more like his likely future role. Because if they get Mbappe or not, they're going to go and buy a superstar striker this summer. I don't think there's any doubt about that. They're not going to go through next season with Hozilu and hope that, um, you know, Bellingham picks up the goal scoring slack. You know, that that is not a sustainable thing. I think the interesting thing about all of this is the fact that Real Madrid are the favourites for La Liga, one of the favourites for the Champions League, no longer in the Copa del Rey, of course, so they can't get the treble. But they're a serious trophy contender, yet quite overtly workshopping at the same time what they're going to do next. And I think their plan of where they're going to go next is different now than it was at the start of the season. And it will be different again. I mean, we saw them beating, come, coming back from 2-0 down to beat Almeria at the weekend. And, you know, Bellingham had a, a great attacking contribution on that. And you saw, like, for example, his, his header down for Carvajal's winner, um, as well as scoring the penalty that got them back in the game. Now, we'll, we'll take out the whole refereeing conversation from that because that's a whole other pod. So we're, we're not going to go there. But we'll touch on it slightly because Bellingham, in the short term, now you have that front two of Vinicius and Rodrigo. And whether they'll play like that, whether it'll be, I don't know, Vinicius and Mbappe going forward or whatever... Whatever system they play, it will, with a new superstar striker, it will elicit Bellingham playing a little bit further back. So he becomes like a more orthodox number 10 or a number eight again, maybe at the tip of a, a midfield diamond, which is very Ancelotti type formation, which is mm. the one that they're practicing at the moment. I think the interesting thing is, you look at the goals they've let in since the turn of the year. So Vinicius is something totally different when he, he he plays a little bit more inside. Rodrigo's contributing well. But all of a sudden, Bellingham, having had no defensive responsibility for all of this season, because it's just like, yeah, you pick up the goal scoring slack. All of a sudden, he's starting to... It's like the honeymoon's over and he's having to go back to doing some of those more midfielderly tasks that he did at Dortmund, for example. And you see those moments, like you see how wound up he got when they went out of the cup to uh, Atletico Madrid, um, you know, and, you know, his teammates were having to contain him because he was putting in some mad tackles, which he's prone to do anyway, and just struggling, I think, with the defensive side of it, which was never an issue at Dortmund. The, the box-to-box thing he could do really well, but now all of a sudden he has to do it for Real Madrid. And you look, They've conceded, what, 10 goals in the last four games? And, you know, they're very neat and tidy. They don't concede a lot of goals generally. And I think this has messed with their equilibrium a bit. Now, obviously, he'll have worked that out by next season. But you see that little bit of frustration again. I mean, so much of focus 
was on how Almeria were outraged with the decisions, in some cases, rightly so, at the weekend. But actually, they had this thing on a uh, movie star on Spanish TV where um, Bellingham just doesn't get a foul at one point. And he, he turns around to the referee and he goes, it's the same shit every week. And it's like, you know that Bellingham, you know, likes to rouse the crowd and play on the edge a little bit. But it's just the first little sign of almost a bit of fallibility at Real Madrid because previous to like the last couple of weeks, he's just been walking on water. He's still enormously influential, of course, but there's just a little bit of adjustment required. I, I wonder whether the problem is like the the, the setup at Real Madrid, as uh, Miguel alluded to, is still a work in progress. So as you're approaching that 4-3-3, it does feel as if you're that Bellingham is going to pay the price for whatever uh, formation they want to uh, to adhere to, to go, going forward. Yeah. And particularly if Mbappe comes in, because from what you're saying, it feels like the three at the front will be Rodrigo, uh, Mbappe and Vinicius Jr. And it won't yeah. be, because Bellingham has been playing as kind of false nine. Yeah. And he enjoys Almost, that yeah. role. And it yeah. feels like they're... Cutting off their nose to spite their face in a way because but, but he's been so successful in that role that you would have thought that they would continue with that. But they didn't buy him as that player, did they? I suppose is is, is your counterpoint mm. to that. And I, I suppose Miguel, like we always knew, and we always talked about it on the pod for like months, that this season was almost a free hit for Bellingham. You know, if yeah. he was going to build a, a campaign to win the Ballon d'Or, because especially as the Ballon d'Or has just become such a you know, statistical sword battle in the Messi-Ronaldo era, Mm. that this was perhaps, and this still perhaps, with the Champions League and the Euros with England as one of the favourites at the end of it, remains Bellingham's perhaps best chance ever to to win it. I'm actually not sure I go, because I I think he will evolve to be on the status, in fact, if he's not already there, to be on the status of Haaland and Mbappe. Mm. I think he's, he's part of that discussion now. In fact, at the moment, I'd say... He's, at the very least, a more consistent and efficient player than Mbappe, especially as there are ongoing questions about Mbappe's, I suppose, application, given he's in the French League and, um, you know, you know what PSG are in that. Um, I mean, I mean, to be honest, I guess, well, like, as, you've, as both of you have referenced there, I suppose, with Madrid, there was always a sense, I mean, even, even the very fact they signed Hosselu in the summer, this has been a, a, <laughs> not quite a place-holding season. But at least the forward position has been the place has been held for this year, and and Bellingham has moved up the cover there. But then, given Bellingham's immense current talent and his potential, I don't think it's exactly an issue if he just moves a little bit further back. <laughs> right, he mightn't score as many goals, but his influence on, on games can be just as strong. Does that change in that case the way that people judge the Ballon d'Or? Because it has felt like in the Messi Ronaldo era, it has just been about who scored the most goals or who's won the major trophies that season. Yeah. It's, it's, it's become quite binary. I, th- I think yeah, our, yeah. I mean, our judgment of, of of who is the most influential player in the world. And from what you're saying, does it feel that in the vacuum yeah. that, fo- that follows the Messi-Ronaldo era, if, if we're assuming that they're not simply culturally and in our imaginations replaced by Mbappe and Haaland, does Bellingham change our view or change this generation's view maybe of what the best footballer in the world should be 
I mean, to my mind, the Ballon d'Or, what it always should have been, was basically an MVP award. Who had yeah? Who who had the most influence over the highest profile events in a given year? I mean, and it should have been a season. It was always a year, which was always quite odd in itself. But yeah. of course, that was morphed just by obviously the celebrity of Messi and Ronaldo. But also, let's be fair, the quality. I mean, we're talking mm-hmm. about two um you sporting freaks in that way beyond beyond anything there were still years within that when they didn't win it but you even or sorry there were still years in that when they maybe shouldn't have won it you know 2010 or 2012 being examples as well as one or two others but just because of what they were and because their influence in the game even even the kind of gravitational effect you could um you you, you could there was still merit to give it to them in the way that in the, the way that mightn't have been the case with other kind of stars considered the best in the world at any given time uh i i do think we will well i think i, I hope we evolve out of that era uh, and it becomes closer to the that, to some sort of mvp in the way the kind of tradition of the award used to be about when it was is this real prestige to it but um it, also there's a bit of a split there and it feels like and maybe that's why the ballon d'or will move towards that because the fifa the best award seems to be more about i suppose the gloss of it all and, and from that perspective, it might, the best might actually help the Ballon d'Or. Let's not forget the Paris Olympics is coming up as well. And uh, Kylian Mbappe wants to play in that, apparently. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. But it's time to uh, recommend a game of the week for us. Uh, each of you, I'm hoping that you've got a game of the week that you think is worth uh, suggesting. Uh, Andy, do you want to go first? Sunday night, um, Paris Saint-Germain versus Brest, which... I think from a distance doesn't look like a particularly remarkable it's picture. It's got Mbappe in it, hasn't but, it? Yeah, but let's consider the fact that Brest are in third place in Ligue 1 at the moment. Now, these games have always tended to be red herrings in the past. And, you know, you think of Lens, who only finished a point behind PSG last season, going to the Parc des Princes in the second half of the season. And you're thinking, OK, this is something where PSG can get genuinely challenged. And then they got a man sent off after 25 minutes. And it, it, it so, kills the game. Look, Eric Watt and Brest, please keep your players on the pitch. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> now, we've, we've spoken before about how Brest have been so brilliant in the first half of the season. Obviously, an unfashionable club from way out west who've massively overachieved. They have done a great job. As Miguel says, as we're recording, 25 days into the transfer window, they've not lost any major players yet. This was always going to be a huge battle for them. If they can hold on to their players, I think their second half of the season is is, is really interesting to, to see. They're bold. They're confident at the moment. You can see that on and off the pitch as well because you've had their president who's running a campaign to get VAR binned from French football. Now, obviously, like that's not been accepted. But to have the president of Brest say, actually, we deserve to be heard. Let's change the game. I think is actually something quite remarkable in a, in, a, in a context beyond Brest and beyond French football. But look, I just want them to go there, players they've been playing these last few weeks, months, and have a proper go. They're so incredibly impressive. Um, let's hope that it's a game that's worthy of the billing. Sunday night. And uh, what should we eat with it, given that tonight is Burns night? Uh, do you have a chief of puddings? Well, you know, all I would say when it comes to PSG, there's a lovely bar right opposite the the, the Parc des Princes. 
um, that sells uh, lager for 12 euros a a pint. So let's just stay away from that. The one that I went to around the corner with Jonathan Johnson, bit of local knowledge, really, really helps there. So I think, um, you know, it's PSG. So let's go for um, some oysters and a few gentle, non-alcoholic beers just around the corner uh, uh, at JJ's place. With a little bit of chief of all the puddings. Uh, Miguel, uh, a recommendation from you and a food one as well, if you don't mind. <laughs> uh, I'm actually going to go for Saturday afternoon because all of their games are now an event given the context of the league, but Augsburg against Bayern, um, which may seem a mismatch, but I think the sudden pressure on Bayern uh, just, uh, th- I think, puts a different spin on each of these games. Uh, all the more so as Tuchel seems intent on in recreating Whatever you want to, if you want to call it, England twenty eighteen or Tottenham twenty sixteen seventeen, <laughs> um, but I think I like it, it's 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 a sort of title race the Bundesliga needs, um, and every game now feels fraught for Bayern Munich with, with all these kind of bigger debates swirling around it. I mean, it, it it's interesting as well because I've seen even there was looking at some of the pieces in Germany this week about there was one I saw the headline uh, the curse that seemed to follow Harry Kane. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Given, oh, I mean, like, it, it it would be quite something if he went from Tottenham because no. they because of <laughs> because they uh, he wanted to win trophies, yeah. and in the very first season he arrives at Bayern after eleven years of titles, yeah. they win nothing, and, and of course Augsburg being in, in mid table, um, it means it, this is an awkward game, yeah. uh, but yeah. I would go with I think uh, Apple Strudel. With cream. Uh, <laughs> That's a pudding. That is a pudding. It's not as good as well, Aggies. You know, it's just pandering no, no, tea here. Yeah. Yeah. This, this isn't a dinner. This is, this is what I want to eat during the game. <laughs> Well, that's about it from us. And thank you for listening to On The Continent. Make sure that you join us again tomorrow for Ask OTC, where we'll be answering all of your questions about the latest news from the world of European football. And do make sure to subscribe in your podcast app so that you never miss an episode. On the Continent is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.